All right. I needed a little break after that last one. Um, I can't say it's good to be back, but it is starting to feel strangely like home. All right. So picking back up. Insight into your economic engine. What is your denominator? The good to great companies frequently produced spectacular returns in very unspectacular industries. The banking industry ranked in the bottom quartile of industry in total returns during the same period that Wells Fargo beat the market by four times. That's, I mean, okay, in total returns, I get it. But the banking industry obviously is a robust industry. And anytime things are going down, there's going to be one who um, is doing well because you can bet that things are going to go down as well so the whole thing about like it's unspectacular well it doesn't really apply because it is spectacular if you're short selling stocks like that's actually great if that if that means that if every if the rest of the banking industry is in the bottom 25 percent the bottom quartile as they say um that in a sense is actually a spec they're spectacular um opportunity there. Even more impressive, both Pitney Bowes and Nucor were in bottom 5% industries. Yet both these companies... (sighs) Now, I don't really remember what those ones do, but uh, it doesn't necessarily apply to them also. With banking and stocks, it's like a specific thing. Uh, Yet both these companies beat the market by well over five times. Only one of the good-to-great companies had the benefit of being in a great industry, defined as a top 10% industry. Five were in good industries. Five were in bad to terrible. See Appendix 5A. Can't wait for that. Man, this is totally non-sequitur, but you know what I've really got stuck in my head is that slowed-down version of Jolene. They just played the record slower. It is awesome. All right, um, blah, blah, blah. Uh, our study clearly shows that a company does not need to be in a great industry to become a great company. I'm sorry, I just involuntarily yawn when he starts... Rep- I, like, we've only been in this chapter for, like, two fucking sentences, and he's already repeating himself. Each good-to-great company built a fabulous economic engine, regardless of the industry. Okay, you ha- that sentence added nothing. Fabulous economic engine. You're just saying the same thing in more colorful language. They were able to do this because they attained profound insights into their economics. Again, not really adding anything. Anyone that thinks it's profound to say they did well because they were profound uh, is profoundly stupid. Um, all right. This is not a book on microeconomics. Oh, pff. well, now you tell me I'm fucking 25% of the way through. Each company in each industry had its own economic realities, and I'm not going to belabor them all here. Oh no, that's scary to hear. It makes me feel like you're going to belabor them all here. The central point is that each good to great company attained a deep understanding of the key drivers in its economic engine and built its system in accordance... I can't stop. I can't. ...with this understanding. That said, however, we did notice one particularly provocative form of economic insight that every good to great company attained. The notion of a single economic denominator. 
Think about it in terms of the following question. If you could pick one and only one ratio profit per X, <laughs> or in the social sector, cash flow per X, to systematically increase over time, what X would have the greatest and most sustainable impact on your economic engine? My penis. Uh, we learned that this single question leads to profound insight into the inner workings of an organization's economics. All right, this sounds like it could be interesting. Uh, recall how Walgreens switched its focus from profit per store to profit per customer visit. Okay. All right. Uh, again, I remember, I, I don't think that was framed very well when you talked about it before. You talked about the per customer visit a lot, but this is an important thing that given how much you repeat yourself, you should have hit home on more, is that you switched from profit per store to profit per customer visit. That's actually a really important thing, and I'm glad you've made it clear this time. Convenient locations are expensive, but by increasing profit per customer visit, Walgreens was able to increase... Con that, that pisses me off that like we had to wait chapters for... The, like. I remember it was belabored so much, but that actual point, like it went from this to this, uh, was not made clearly. He just kept saying, it's this. By increasing profit per customer visit, Walgreens was able to increase convenience, nine stores in a mile, and simultaneously increase profitability across its entire system. The standard metric of profit per store would have run contrary to the convenience concept. The quickest way to increase profit per store is to decrease the number of stores and put them in less expensive locations. This would have destroyed the convenience concept. Or consider Wells Fargo. Alright. When the Wells team confronted the brutal fact that deregulation would transform banking into a commodity, oh no, you're going to have to make billions of dollars, they realized that standard banker metrics like profit per loan and profit per deposit would no longer be the key drivers. Instead, they grasped a new denominator, profit per employee. Ooh, that seems kind of dark when we're talking about banks, but... Following this logic, Wells Fargo became one of the first banks to change its distribution system to rely primarily on stripped-down branches and ATMs. <laughs> In other words, get rid of a bunch of people and your profit per person left will be higher. Not that I have a problem with ATMs. Uh, the denominator can be quite subtle, sometimes even unobvious. I really don't like that sentence. <sighs> I'm sorry. I just really like that's just dumb. And I hate un like someone edited this and left unobvious in there. The key is to use the question of the denominator to gain understanding and insight into your economic model. For, uh, let's see. For example, Fannie Mae grasped the subtle denominator of profit per mortgage risk level, not per mortgage, which would be the obvious choice. Okay, so um, it's giving out loans and like it's um, it's assigning value to each like quantity of risk it's putting out as opposed to like the mortgage itself so if you give a hundred thousand dollars to someone that might not pay it back that's worth more risk level points than if you give a hundred thousand dollars to someone who's very likely to pay it back 
That said, they're dealing with mortgages. So the entire thing is a bunch of backwards bullshit because what happens when they can't pay their mortgage? The bank comes in and fucking takes the house. They take the house back. The bank owns the house. And then all the money that the person has paid them towards the mortgage before they defaulted is just the bank's now. So we can sit here and like discuss back and forth like, oh, this is so smart that I did this. But it really, it's this is 100%. This is just like objective shit. It is set up so that they profit the most when the people don't fucking pay them back. It's economic downturns where the banks really come out on top because everyone in general goes down a little bit, but then when it starts rebuilding, it's sort of an even playing field, but hey, oh, all of a sudden the banks now own a bunch of fucking property, which is a tangible thing as opposed to like the money that they just say they're lending you even though they can lend out 10 times more than they actually have so it's really just pretend money that they're lending you and they're getting real houses in return it's a brilliant insight the real driver in Fannie Mae's economics is the ability to understand risk of default in a package of mortgages better than anyone else basically they looked for minorities and said hey no more then it makes money selling insurance and managing the spread on that risk. Simple, insightful, unobvious, and right. You know, I actually like unobvious more the second time he says it, because now it's more like, hey, it's my thing that I say. Uh, still don't agree with it, but uh, I mean, I don't agree with its usage at all. Not that I disagree with the insight. All right, I had a few cups of coffee. I'm, I can feel myself start to wake up now. Nucor, for example, made its mark on the ferociously priced competitive steel industry with the denominator profit per ton of finished steel. Finished steel, of course. Steel made in Finland. I'm just going to pause to let you catch your breath after that fucking amazing juke. At first glance, you might think that per employee or per fixed cost might be the proper denominator. But the new core people understood that the driving force in its economic engine was a combination of a strong work ethic and racism. Sorry, that's not. And the application of advanced manufacturing technology. Profit per employee or per fixed cost would not capture this duality, as well as profit per ton of finished steel. Do you need to have a single denominator? No. But pushing for a single denominator tends to produce better insight than letting yourself off the hook with three or four denominators. The denominator question serves as a mechanism to force deeper understanding of the key drivers in your economic engine. As the denominator question emerged from our research, we tested, uh, we tested the question on a number of executive teams. We found that the question always stimulated intense dialogue and debate. Always. <laughs> Furthermore, even in cases where the team failed or refused to identify a single denominator, the challenge of the question drove them to deeper insight. And that is, after all, the point. To have a denominator not for the sake of having a denominator, but for the sake of gaining insight that ultimately leads to more robust and sustainable economics. Alright, I like that point. Economic denominator. Oh, good, a table. 
This table shows the economic denominator insight attained by the good to great companies during the pivotal transition years. Abbott, per employee. Key insight, shift from profit per product line to profit per employee fit with the idea of contributing to cost-effective health care. Circuit City, per geographic region. Key insight, shift from profit per single store to profit per region reflected local economics of scale. While per-store performance remained vital, regional grouping was a key insight that drove Circuit City's economics beyond silos. Okay, this is actually really interesting. So depending on what was relevant to that industry or that company, um, uh, they're going to pick different ways. Yeah, measuring the profit. But <clears throat> some of them are directly contrary to the other ones because there's different things about the industry. Uh, Fannie Mae, per mortgage risk level. We already talked about that one. Key insight, shift from profit per mortgage to profit per mortgage risk level reflected the fundamental insight that managing interest risk reduces dependence on the direction of interest rates. I mean, that just sounds so obvious when you put it like that, though. Like, I mean, when you simplify everything into one or two senses, it's going to sound obvious, but that one especially sounds obvious. Uh, if you're risking less, it doesn't matter as much what the interest rate is. That's, yeah, if you're not risking as whatever. Gillette, per customer. Shift from profit per division to profit per customer reflected the economic power of repeatable purchases. Example, razor cartridges. Times high profit per purchase. Example, Mach 3, not disposable razors. Okay, so it's more relevant because you're getting more repeat things there with Fannie Mae. That wouldn't make sense. You're not going to get as many like repeat mortgage people. But uh, the blade replacements are probably a very high profit compared to the blade uh, original thing. So um, you can give up some value in the actual initial blade if they get a bunch of uh, cartridges. <clears throat> I mean, he's not saying that, but that's what I'm extrapolating because I have bought razors and the cartridges are almost as expensive. Kimberly Clark, per consumer brand. Key insight, shift from profit per fixed asset, the mills, to profit per consumer brand. Would be less cyclical and more profitable in good times and bad. All right, my favorite, Kroger, per location population, or per Jew, as it sometimes appears. You know that someone brought in uh, cheesy poofs, uh, cheese, cheese balls, the ball kind? Um, the Kroger brand, which surprisingly I've never had. They brought them into work. They were really good. They're some of the best cheese balls I've ever had. Key insight. Cheese balls. <laughs> Shift. <laughs> Sorry. Stupid. Shift from profit per store to profit per local population reflect the insight that local market share drove grocery economics. Now, I don't... That sounds like... Uh, that sounds very similar to the uh, per geographic region circuit city thing. Um, and I'm sure there's subtle differences, but... Again, no matter how many times we cover things, uh, covering those subtle differences is not the strong point. It's more about rephrasing the same thing. Uh, shift from profit per store to profit per local population reflected the insight that local market share drove grocery economics. If you can't attain number one or two in local share, you should not play. Okay, well, that's adding something. New core. Per ton of finished steel. 
Key insight. Shift from profit per division to profit per ton of finished steel reflected Nucor's unique blend of high-productivity culture mixed with mini-mill technology, rather than just focusing on volume. Philip Morris. Per tumor. Per global brand category. Key insight. Shift from profit per sales region to profit per global brand category reflected the understanding that the real key to greatness lay in brands that could have global power, like Coke. Did we already talk about Coke? You should look it up. It's the they have I don't know if charter is the word. They are the only company entity at all. They can still import the cocoa leaves because although they are no longer made with cocaine, they say that there's some like key ingredient in the leaves um, that is necessary for like their flavor. And so they have to extract that. And so they actually have car blanche from the government to to import all these cocoa leaves. Now, what happens to all the potential cocaine? I mean, supposedly it's just dumped. I think the company is like in New Jersey too, which just makes it more shady. I forget exactly. Um, and maybe it is all thrown away. Seems like a lot of money to spend... Importing a specific leaf, though, to just throw away a bunch of cocaine. Also, worth noting, Coke, he mentions it here. He doesn't mention any other comparison companies in here. Why? Because Coke is the quintessential successful company. Long, long after it had the cocaine in it, Coke has been the number one company to invest in year after year for Decades and decades. Again, don't know what they're doing with all that potential cocaine, but they're making a lot of money. Pitney Bowes, per customer. Key insight. Maybe they're just giving it to the employees, and that's how they, I don't know. That would be like the innocuous version. Pitney Bowes, per customer. Maybe the, maybe the executives are just doing it. That'd be my favorite. They're just like, our fucking company kicks ass. You can only make so much money. We need to reward ourselves. Let's import cocaine. Penny bows per customer. Key insight. Shift from profit per postage meter to profit per customer reflected the idea that Pitney Bowes could use its postage meters as a jumping off point to bring a range of sophisticated products into the back offices of customers. <laughs> customers. Wait a minute. I don't remember him talking about the back offices as much. I do remember him talking about that when he was talking about their comparison company, the Ash guy with the Abbott Smith typewriters or whatever the fuck they were, address, addressograph. Um, I mean, I guess it's good to restate things when you actually learn new things from it, but uh, one, I don't think he made a, he did a good job making some of these points, but two, I guess maybe you could say there's something to be said for like having some time in between like talking about a different company then coming back, maybe more knowledge can be learned that way. Um, in which case, I wish she would just do that more often instead of belaboring every point. Um, Walgreens, per customer. Um, okay, so the last two have the same. The same denominator. Key insight. Shift from profit per store to profit per customer visit. Reflected a symbiotic relationship between convenient and and expensive store sites and sustainable economics. Oh, there's one more. Wells Fargo. Per 
employee. Key insight, shift from profit per loan to profit per employee reflected understanding of the brutal fact of deregulation. Banking is a commodity. Please stop calling it brutal. Table summary. Again, this is what drove me insane last time. A table titled Economic Denominator shows the economic denominator grasped by good-to-great companies during the crucial transition years. Abbott shifted its economic denominator from... No, not going to do that. Fuck you. I'm not going to do it. <sighs> All the good-to-great companies discovered a key economic denominator, while the comparison companies usually didn't. In fact, we found only one comparison case that attained a profound insight into its economics. Hasbro built its upswing on the insight that a portfolio of classic toys and games, such as G.I. Joe and Monopoly, produces more sustainable cash flow than big one-time hits. Oh, Hasbro is one of the comparison ones, I guess. In fact, Hasbro is one is the one comparison company that understood all three circles of the hedgehog concept. All right, Hasbro. Also, good for him for like actually pointing out that there is uh, an exception to the rule. It became the best in the world at acquiring and renewing tried and true toys, reintroducing and recycling them at just the right time to increase profit per classic brand. And its people had great passion for the business. Systematically building from all three circles, Hasbro became the best-performing comparison in our study, lending further credence to the power of the hedgehog concept. So it's the best-performing one of the ones that didn't quite meet their good-to-great thing. And it also had the hedgehog concept, so yeah, that is a good argument for it. Hasbro became an unsustained transition in part because it lost the discipline to stay within the three circles. Well... Easy for you to say. After the unexpected death of CEO Stephen Hassenfeld, the Hasbro case reinforces a vital lesson. If you successfully apply these ideas, but then stop doing them, you will slide backward from good to great or worse. The only way to... Oh, man, I was doing good for a while, but, man, you fucking bored me. The only way to remain great is to keep applying the fundamental principles that made you great. Okay, that's really important, guys. Let's remember, if you stop doing the things that were good, it's not good. Please stop. I can't take any more insight. Understanding your passion. Ooh, this kind of made me cringe. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. I just, uh, I just was scanning through and the sentence that popped out to me was, I love cigarettes. I doubt he's going to be actually saying that, but, uh. That's pretty awesome that that's what popped out. Also, that's what she said, potentially. Maybe. Kind of. A little bit. It works. A little bit. Shut up. The interviewing when, Philip Morris, when interviewing Philip Morris executives, we encountered an intensity and passion that surprised us. <laughs> Recall from Chapter 3 how George Weissman described working at the company as the great love affair of his life, second only to his marriage. Even with the most sinful collection of consumer products, Marlboro, cigarettes, Miller beer, 67% fat-filled Velveeta. <laughs> I love that. That's actually fucking smart. Someone should do that. Take the fat burger approach. Because um, that, that's not what Velveeta is advertised as, obviously. But someone should say 67% fat-filled Velveeta. Also, fuck this guy for all of us. What the fuck? Maxwell House for caffeine addicts. Toblerone for chocoholics and so forth. What the f- I mean, maybe he just felt the beer and the cigarettes uh, didn't necessitate explaining, which I could see, but my God, it seems like he's all of a sudden editorializing like, yeah, that's fine, um, cigarettes, beer, and then 67% Velveeta, caffeine stuff, 
chocolate. But no, I think it's probably the first thing I said. I just don't know why you wouldn't. Whatever. Just be consistent. We found tremendous passion for the business. It's funny, this says, even with the most sinful collection of consumer products, we found tremendous passion. Uh, no, it sounds like the people just were sinful. It sounds like the people who were working there liked it. Most of the top executives at Philip Morris were passionate consumers of their own products. Huh? That'll help, too. They're addicted. Oh, my God, this company's great, right? In 1979, Ross Milheiser, then vice chairman of Philip Morris and a dedicated smoker, said, I love cigarettes. It's one of the things that makes life really worth living. I love that. That reminds me, I don't, I don't know if I brought this up when you were talking about Philip Morris before, but uh, when I was reading it, a meme popped into my head. Uh, that I made up um, and it's one of those uh, it's like the Marlboro Man the cowboy guy with the cigarette and at the top it has the government mandated warning quitting smoking now can reduce your risk of heart disease and extend your life by an average of seven years and then the tagline is just sure but is it really living I thought that was pretty awesome now Philip Morris people clearly loved their company and had passion for what they were doing. It's as if they viewed themselves as the lone, fiercely independent cowboy depicted in the Marlboro billboards. God, the son of a bitch is independent. Nothing more independent than a highly successful corporate business. We have a right to smoke, and we will protect that right, a board member told me during my research for a previous project. I really love being on the board of Philip Morris. It's like being part of something really special. She said this pr as she proudly puffed away. Now, I've definitely heard stories of executives who didn't smoke part of these cigarette companies and who definitely admitted that they thought it was dumb. But there is a psychological thing where we like to convince ourselves of things so we, uh, you know, so we remain, n so we're not contradicting our stances. So... I could definitely see someone liking smoking the more money they make by selling more cigarettes. Now you might say, but that's just the defensiveness of the tobacco industry. Of course they'd feel that way. Otherwise, how could they sleep at night? Okay, that's, that's another version of what I said. But keep in mind that R.J. Reynolds was also in the tobacco business and under siege from society. Yet, unlike Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds' executives began to diversify away from tobacco into any arena where it could get growth, regardless of whether they had passion for those acquisitions or whether the company could be the best in the world at them. The Philip Morris people stuck closer to the tobacco business, in large part because they loved that business. In contrast, the R.J. Reynolds people saw tobacco as just a way to make money. As vividly portrayed in the book Barbarians at the Gate, R.J. Reynolds executives eventually lost passion for anything except making themselves rich through a leveraged buyout. Okay. <clears throat> Where do I start with that? Um, I thought... Not worried, but I, 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 I was a little surprised when he said, now you might say, and then he gave us a somewhat more simplistic version of what I had just said. And I was like, oh, wow, he actually anticipated that to an extent. But his example fucking sucks. But keep in mind, R.J. Reynolds was also in the tobacco industry. Okay, but then they weren't. So that doesn't mean that her saying I love tobacco is not a way of justifying you know is not a way of uh oh he's just saying defensiveness his is not that insightful actually 
but her puffing away that doesn't mean it's not uh a reason that she is giving herself to quote sleep at night like that has nothing to do with it also maybe it's even more true because rj reynolds couldn't sleep at night so that's why they moved into other things like it's a terrible example and that's not even bringing up the whole like evilness of it it's just a bad example It may seem odd to talk about something as soft and fuzzy as passion as an integral part of a strategic framework. I think that's a a really stupid way of saying that. I would say maybe it's odd to talk about something as, like, hard to define. Passion may be hard to operationalize into a concrete variable you can measure. Uh, You can describe it as amorphous, perhaps. Um, but soft and fuzzy is not getting the point across. That's, I see what you're saying, but you're not saying the right thing. But throughout the good to great companies, passion became a key part of the hedgehog concept. Ah, yes, the passionate hedgehog. You can't manufacture passion or motivate people to feel passionate. You can only discover what ignites your passion and the passions of those around you. Um... The verbiage ignite, maybe a little bit too soon. A little bit too soon on the fire, but, uh, uh, you know, because cigarettes. Uh, The good to great companies did not say, you can only discover what makes your passion spread through the company, what makes it metastasize through the company. Once it gets into the lymph nodes, it can't stop from getting all throughout the whole company, and then cutting off a part of the company won't do anything. It's already unstoppable. You've got stage four company. The good to great companies did not say, okay, folks, let's get passionate about what we do. Sensibly, they went the other way entirely. We should only do those things we can get passionate about. Uh, I feel like your trepidation about using passion is starting to share. I mean, this is the way you're saying it. It's going to be hard to... Like, I get tobacco. That's going to be hard to show with, like, oh, Circuit City wasn't passionate about per-customer visit. They were passionate about per-geographic region. Like, no, that's not going to fucking work. I'm telling you right now, buddy. We should only do those things we can get passionate about. Kimberly-Clark executives made the shift to paper-based consumer products in large part because they could get more passionate about them. Okay. As one executive put it, I mean, that's weak, but the traditional paper products are okay, quote, but they just don't have the charisma of a diaper. Okay, that's funny. I like it. However, not proving your point at all. In fact, you're proving the point. You could say it's the opposite point, that he is joking. He's making fun of the fact, because obviously no one thinks the diaper. You know what I'm saying. Look, I don't. I'm moving on. He's being sarcastic. When Gillette executives made the choice to build sophisticated, relatively expensive shaving systems rather than fight a low-margin battle with disposables, they did so in large part because they just couldn't get excited about cheap disposable razors. This is, you're really pushing this. Zayn talks about shaving systems with the sort of technical gusto one expects from a Boeing or Hughes engineer, wrote one journalist about Gillette's CEO in 96. Gillette has always been the best at its best when it stick has always been at its best when it sticks to businesses that fit its hedgehog concept. People who aren't passionate about Gillette need not apply, wrote a Wall Street Journal article, who went on to describe how a top business school graduate wasn't hired because she didn't show enough passion for deodorant. It sounds like it's a euphemism for just saying she smelled bad, which I get. 
Perhaps you too can't get passionate about deodorant. <laughs> oh, well, there's where you're wrong, sir. Perhaps you might find it hard to imagine being passionate about pharmacies, grocery stores, tobacco, or postage meters. No, I find it hard to imagine being passionate specifically about uh, per person as opposed to per geographic location. Per person visit, rather. You might wonder about what type of person gets all jazzed up about making a bank as efficient as McDonald's. Or who considers a diaper charismatic? Okay, stop. Jesus fucking Christ. It was a joke. In the end, it doesn't really matter. In the end, diaper, hmm, eh, eh, it's not worth it. The point is that they felt passionate about what they were doing, and the passion was deep and genuine and smelly and cancerous. Uh, this doesn't mean, however, that you have to be passionate about the mechanics of the business per se, although you might be. The passion circle... <laughs> Sounds like something a bunch of old, fat, rich people do to summon demons. The passion circle can be focused equally on what the company stands for. For example, the Fannie Mae people were not passionate about the mechanical process of packaging mortgages into market securities, but they were terrifically motivated by the whole idea of helping people of all... No. <sighs> they were motivated by the whole idea of helping people of all classes backgrounds, and races realize the American dream of owning their home. Whatever happened to the deregulation? Like, that wasn't brought up at all before. What about the fact that they were standing in the face of the adversity caused by fewer restrictions to their industry? Linda Knight, who joined Fannie Mae in 1983, just as the company faced its darkest days, okay, Knight, dark, a lot of, uh, stuff going on there, told us, this wasn't just any old company getting into trouble. This was a company at the core of making home ownership a reality for thousands of Americans. Yes, homes that would later be snatched away from them. It's a role that is far more important than just making money, and that's why we felt such a depth of commitment to preserve, protect, and enhance the company. As another Fannie Mae executive summed up, ICS is a key mechanism for strengthening the whole social fabric of America. Whenever I drive through difficult neighborhoods that are coming back because more families own their homes, I return to work regenerized. That's right. More families own their homes. The triumph of understanding over bravado. On the research team, we frequently found ourselves talking about the difference between pre-hedgehog and post-hedgehog states. In the pre-hedgehog state, it's like groping through the fog. Gross. You're making progress on a long march, but you can't see all that well. At each juncture in the trail, you can only see a little bit ahead and must move at a deliberate, slow crawl. Then, with the hedgehog concept, you break into a clearing. <sighs> You're dragging this out, buddy. You break into a clearing. The fog lifts and you can see for miles. From then on, each juncture requires less deliberation, and you can shift from crawl to walk, from walk to run. In the post-hedgehog state, miles of trail move swiftly beneath your feet. Forks in the road fly past as you quickly make decisions that you could not have seen so clearly in the fog. What's so striking about the comparison companies is that, for all their change programs, frantic, gest <laughs> frantic gesticulations, and which obviously were not mentioned, uh, and charismatic leaders, they rarely emerged from the fog. They would try to run, making bad decisions at forks in the road, then have to reverse course later, or they would veer off the trail entirely, banging into trees and tumbling down ravines. 
Oh, but they were sure doing it with speed and panache. Um, I remember Mina's doctor uh, showed me the, the radiographs, the x-rays, when she had pneumonia. And uh, x-rays are really an interesting thing, but you can see the subtle like hints of like uh, the infection in the lungs. Just a little like slight gray area. And she called it trees in the fog. I always remember that. That's what you're looking for when you look for pneumonia, trees in the fog. Actually, not the pneumonia. It's just the kennel cough in general. Pneumonia is just when that progresses into the lower lungs. For the comparison companies, the exact same world that had become so simple and clear to the good-to-great companies remained complex and shrouded in mist. Why? For two reasons. First, the comparison companies never asked the right questions. The questions prompted by the three circles... Second, they set their goals and strategies more from bravado than from understanding. <clears throat> now, if you're about to go into something, okay, if that's supposed to sum up what was just said, it didn't. It did the, when did the bravado come into this? Except in the, like, metaphor used of someone driving, but still, that's just you using colorful analogies. Nowhere is this more evident than in the comparison company's mindless pursuit of growth. Over two-thirds of the comparison companies displayed an obsession with growth without the benefit of a hedgehog concept. Yes, we have more money, but where's the goddamn hedgehog? Statements such as, we've been a growth. We've been a growth at any price company. Okay, statements such as, we've been a growth at any price company. Well, that really is... Uh, I mean, it's awkwardly worded, but that's fine. But uh, it's still too soon after talking about Philip Morris to talk about growths at any price. And betting that size equals success pepper the materials on the comparison companies. In contrast, not one of the good to great companies focused obsessively on growth. Obsessive is a subjective term. You better watch that. Yet they created sustained, profitable growth far greater than the comparison companies that made growth their mantra. Oh, really? They created more sustained, profitable growth? Is that maybe why they're the good to great ones and the other ones you've specifically put in categories based on how much they could create sustained, profitable growth? Consider the case of Great Western and Fannie Mae. Great Western is a might unwieldy, wrote the Wall Street transcript. It wants to grow everywhere, every way it can. The company found itself in finance, leasing, insurance, and manufactured houses, continually acquiring companies in an expansion binge. Bigger. More. In 1985, Great Western CEO told the gathering of analysts, don't worry about what you call us, a bank, an SNL, or a zebra. Savings and loan, I guess, is SNL. <laughs> S and L, not S and L. Quite a contrast to Fannie Mae, which had a simple, crystalline understanding that it could be the best capital markets player in anything related to mortgages, better even than Goldman Sachs or Solomon Brothers in opening up the full capital markets to the mortgage process. It built a powerful economic machine by reframing its business model on risk management rather than mortgage selling, and it drove the machine with great passion. The Fannie Mae people inspired by its viral role in democratizing home ownership. The Fannie Mae people inspired by its vital role in democratizing home ownership. Until 1984, the stock charts tracked each other like mirror images. Then in 84, one year after it clarified its hedgehog concept, Fannie Mae exploded upward while Great Western kept lollygagging along until just before its acquisition in 1997. 
By focusing on its simple, elegant conception and not just focusing on growth, Fannie Mae grew revenues nearly threefold from its transition year in 84 through 96. Great Western, for all its gobbling of growth steroids, grew revenues and earnings only 25% over the same period, then lost its independence in 1997. Box. The Fannie Mae vs. Great Western case highlights an essential point. Growth is not a hedgehog concept. Rather, if you have the right hedgehog concept and make decisions relentlessly consistent with it, you will create such momentum that your main problem will not be how to grow, but how not to grow too fast. Yes, yeah, like I'm not even worried about how I'm going to grow anymore. It's like, uh, how, uh, I got to worry about like growing too much, you know? The hedgehog concept is a turning point in the journey from good to great. In most cases, the transition date follows within a few years of the hedgehog concept. Furthermore, everything from here on out in the book hinges upon having the hedgehog concept. As will become abundantly clear in the following chapters, disciplined action, the third big chunk in the framework after disciplined people and disciplined thought, only makes sense in the context of the hedgehog concept. Um, it's probably, I mean, hopefully I'll talk about it, but if discipline is present in all three i would say that's as you know obvious as it is that's worth talking about as well as like a meta hedgehog despite its vital importance or rather because of its vital importance it would be a terrible mistake to thoughtlessly attempt to jump right to a hedgehog concept you can't just go off site for two days pull a bunch of flip charts do breakout discussions and come up with a deep understanding well you can do that but you probably won't get it right it would be like Einstein saying, I think it's time to become a great scientist, so I'm going to go off to the Four Seasons this weekend, pull out the flip charts, and unlock the secrets of the universe. Insight just doesn't happen that way. It took Einstein ten years of groping through the fog to get the theory of special relativity, and he was a bright guy. <laughs> Least necessary qualifier ever. Hey, you know, uh, this might not win me a lot of friends, but I think that Einstein, he's kind of a bright guy. It took about four years on average for the good to great companies to clarify their hedgehog concepts. Like scientific insight, a hedgehog concept simplifies a complex world and makes decisions much easier. But while it has crystalline clarity and elegant simplicity, once you have it, getting the concept can be devilishly difficult and takes time. Recognize that getting a hedgehog concept is an inherently iterative process, not an event. Alright, I like that. That's kind of like the discipline I was talking about a second ago. The essence of the process is to get the right people engaged in vigorous dialogue and debate, infused with the brutal facts and guided by questions formed by the three circles. Do we really understand what we can be best at in the world, as distinct from what we can just be successful at? Do we really understand the drivers in our economic engine, including our economic denominator? Do we really understand what best ignites our passion? One particularly useful mechanism for moving the process along is a device that we came to call the Council. That sounds ominous. The Council consists of a group of the right people who participate in dialogue and debate guided by the three circles, iteratively and over time, about vital issues and decisions facing the organization. See characteristics of the council below. Uh, there's a circle. In the middle it says the council, and then it goes around the circle like this. Ask questions, guided by the three circles. Goes to dialogue, and... It cuts off. Dialogue and something, guided by the three circles. 
Then executive decisions guided by the three circles. It must be dialogue and debate, but that's only because he's repeating himself, not because the book actually didn't fuck up. Um, and then finally, autopsies and analysis guided by the three circles, which leads back to ask questions guided by the three circles. Getting the hedgehog concept, getting the hedgehog concept, an iterative process. Awkward sense. I think they're saying getting it to be one. If they're saying understanding it, it should be concept, comma, an iterative process, but it's not. In response to the question, how should we go about getting our hedgehog concept? I would point to the diagram on page 114 and say, buy my book. <laughs> I would say, build the council and use that as a model. Ask the right questions, engage in vigorous debate, make decisions, autopsy the results, and learn. All guided within the context of the three circles. Just keep going through that cycle of understanding. When asked, how do we accelerate the process of getting a hedgehog concept? I would respond, increase the number of times you go around that full circle in a given period of time. If you go through the cycle enough times, guided resolutely by the three circles, you'll eventually gain the deep you'll eventually gain the depth of understanding required for a hedgehog concept. It will not happen overnight, but it will eventually happen. Characteristics of the council. The Council exists as a device to gain understanding about the important issues facing the organization. That's number one. Number two, the Council is assembled and used by the leading executive and usually consists of five to twelve people. It really sounds like something from a horror movie. In fact, I could definitely see that as the title of a horror movie. The Council. It's kind of like The Martyrs, one of those movies. Number three, each council member has the ability to argue and debate in a search for understanding, not from the egoistic need to win a point or protect a parochial interest. There's that word again. Was it parochial? I think it was. We're going to take a second. It's worth it. This time we'll remember. Oh, I won't play when this is plugged in. Okay. Um, that was worth it. Each council member retains the respect of every other council member, without exception. Number five, council members come from a range of perspectives, but each member has a deep knowledge about some aspect of the organization and or environment in which it operates. Number six, the council includes key members of the management team, but is not limited to members of the management team, nor is every executive automatically a member. Seven, the council is a standing body, not an ad hoc committee assembled for a specific project. Number eight, the council meets periodically, as much as once a week or as infrequently as once per quarter. 9. The Council does not seek consensus, recognizing that consensus decisions are often at odds with intelligent decisions. Hmm, that's a powerful stand. <clears throat> the responsibility for the final decision remains with the leading executive. 10. The Council is an informal body, not listed on any formal organization chart or in any formal documents. That sounds like with a publicly traded company you're getting into uh, some dubious legal territory, but okay. 11. The council can have a range of possible names, usually quite innocuous. This is stupid. <laughs> Fucking. And the good to great companies, they had benign names like Long Range Profit Improvement Committee, Corporate Products Committee, Strategic Thinking Group, and Executive Council. Does every organization have a hedgehog concept to discover? What if you wake up, look around with brutal honesty, and conclude, we're not the best at anything, and we never have been? 
Therein lies one of the most exciting aspects of the entire study. In the majority of cases, the good-to-great companies were not the best in the world at anything and showed no prospects of becoming so. Infused with the Stockdale paradox, there must be something we can become the best at and we will find it. We must also confront the brutal facts of what we cannot be the best at and will not delude ourselves. Every good-to-great company, no matter how awful at the start of the process, prevailed in its search for a hedgehog concept. Okay, I like how he tied it into that. Um, As you search for your own concept, keep in mind that when the good-to-great companies finally grasped their hedgehog concept, it had none of the tiresome, iterating... Oh, sorry. None of the tiresome, irritating blasts of mindless bravado typical typical of the comparison companies. Yep, we could be the best at that, was stated as the recognition of a fact. No more startling than observing that the sky is blue or the grass is green. When you get your hedgehog concept right, it has the quiet ping of truth, like a single, clear, perfectly struck note hanging in the air in the hushed silence of a full auditorium at the end of a quiet movement or a Mozart piano concerto. I really liked that sentence, but you just didn't need the examples at the end, especially two examples, but it was almost a really good sentence. There is no need to say much of anything. The quiet truth speaks for itself. I'm reminded of a personal experience in my own family that illustrates the vital difference between bravado and understanding. My wife, Joanne, began racing marathons and triathlons in the early 80s. As she accumulated experience, track times, swim splits, race results, she began to feel the momentum of success. One day, she entered a race with many of the best women triathletes in the world, and, despite a weak swim where she came out of the water hundreds of places behind the top swimmers and having to push a heavy non-aerodynamic bike up a long hill, she managed to cross the finish line in the top ten. Then, a few weeks later, while sitting at breakfast, Joanne looked up from her morning newspaper and calmly said, I think I could win the Ironman. The Ironman, the world championship of triathlons, involves 2.4 miles of ocean swimming, 112 miles of cycling, capped off with a 26.2-mile marathon foot race on the hot lava-baked Kona coast of Hawaii. Of course, I'd have to quit my job, turn down my offers to graduate school, she'd been admitted to graduate school at a number of top schools, and commit to full-time training. But her words had no bravado in them, no hype, no agitation, no pleading. She didn't try to convince me. She simply observed what she had come to understand was a fact, a truth no more shocking than stating that the walls were painted white. She had the passion. She had the genetics. And if she won races, she'd have the economics. The goal to win the Ironman flowed from early understanding of her hedgehog concept. And so she decided to go for it. She quit her job. She turned down graduate schools. She sold the mills. But she did keep me on the bus. And three years later, on a hot October day in 1985, she crossed the finish line at the Hawaii Ironman in first place, world champion. Wow. When Joanne set out to win the Ironman, she did not know if she could become the world's best triathlete, but she understood that she could. She did not know if she would become the world's best triathlete, but she understood that she could, that it was in the realm of possibility, that she was not living a delusion. And that distinction makes all the difference. It's a distinction that those who want to go from good to great must grasp, and one that and one that those who fail to become great so often never do.